0: Hi, my name is Leah Carter. I'm a medical student, abortion and law doula, and health policy advocate working towards health equity and access to underserved communities.
1: And I'm Brianna Lopez. I'm a winemaker, current master's student, and advocate for raising awareness about exploited women, specifically human trafficking.
0: You're listening to ACT UP, a podcast that addresses important issues in our world today. Join us as we discuss hot topics, influential women, and grassroots movements across the country. We raise our voices to not only boost awareness, but
1: to spark our listeners to take action within their communities. The time of this recording is Sunday, January 3rd, 2021 at 8.30 p.m. Things may have changed by the time that you hear this. Before we dive into hot topics, we would like to put a content warning on this episode due to talks of rape, human trafficking, and domestic violence. Our first hot topic is an update on the organization Exodius Cry, Mm -hmm. which they have been pushing forward with a movement trying to end Pornhub, get it shut down. Mm -hmm. And if you've been an avid listener on the podcast, you've heard a lot about Exodius Cry, which fights human trafficking and has just been really calling out Pornhub. And if you don't know Pornhub, it's the world's largest Porn site and it has been profiting uh, films and recordings of rapes of trafficked victims with no accountability in place to prevent videos like this from being uploaded to its site. The movement to shut down Pornhub caught the attention of millions of people with over two million, including myself, who signed the petition to shut down Pornhub. The movement continued to catch the eyes of civilians, celebrities, and politicians. Exodus Cry has achieved a lot through this movement, especially this year. And a couple examples are Thailand shutting down Pornhub for violating its Computer Crimes Act and major Thai news outlets aired Clips from Exodus Cry's Trafficking Hub video, prize-winning journalist Nicholas Kristof, New York Times expose on Pornhub created international media shockwaves, leading to over 4,000 follow-up articles across the globe. Visa, MasterCard, and Discover severed their business relationships with Pornhub. Pornhub executives have been called to testify before a Canadian parliamentary committee. Pornhub removed its infamous download button and deleted 10 plus million of its videos nearly 75 percent of its video collection. Pornhub completely changed its business model and ceased to exist as a porn tube site. Four U.S. senators introduced two separate bipartisan bills one to help victims more easily sue sites like Pornhub and one requiring age and consent verification by those featured in videos. A law that has been called for since day one of the Exotic Cry campaign. 40 victims of the Girls Do Porn trafficking scheme are now suing Pornhub for $1 million each for knowingly hosting and profiting from videos of their exploitation. The filed complaint describes how Girls Do Porn sex trafficked hundreds of high school and college-aged women using fraud, Coercion and intimidation to get the young women to film pornographic videos.
0: So, you're the first person who introduced me into what Exodus Cry was doing in terms of trying to get Pornhub porn to take accountability. But since then, it was like, you know, kind of on my radar. And when I saw this, I was literally screaming for joy. I was like, yes. Like, they not only hit them where it hurt in their pockets, and they can't take any money for like the premium subscription, whatever people pay for, because if they're not working with the major credit card carriers, who, like, how are you going to get money? Also, now they're exactly. exactly Yeah their executives also have to face legal consequences. So I was really excited by this.
1: They're definitely getting hit hard. And even before these 40 victims, 22 other victims won 12.7 million in a recent lawsuit against the girls do porn mm-hmm. and Pornhub still hasn't even paid them. So oh, that's a whole nother thing. So I think these achievements are just, they're monumental. They're, they're massive and historical because yeah. Pornhub is, been a site that millions of people across the globe have used mm-hmm. and this movement is just holding them accountable not just them but other sites have been actually tightening up their own restrictions mm-hmm. and making sure that they aren't going to get hit by this yep because you can't measure the impact of 10 million pornographic videos being deleted. No. That is really crazy. So I'm all for this global trafficking hub and porn hub movement. And I think it's definitely proved to be a force to be reckoned with. And I, I really want to thank you know all the women and people across the United States and across the world who signed the petition and petitioned in front of the Pornhub building to, and just worked really hard to get everything that they have achieved this year.
0: Yeah, I think it's also a great testament to the power that there is in numbers and the power that there is in grassroots movements because Exodus Cry isn't a large corporation fighting another large business. They're a grassroots movement. They are funded primarily by donations from activists, but they still were able to make this monumental change.
1: Yes. I think my favorite part was when I... Had learned that Visa, MasterCard, all those kind of companies sever ties with Pornhub because, like you said, how can you pay for a site like this? You can't, I guess, cash, but like, how are you gonna do that over the internet? That's so inconvenient. <laughs>
0: Sending cash free. I don't know. No box in the valley.
1: You know, like a check, like back in the day when you like, fill out your check, put it in an envelope, mail it in. So it might take like, seven to 14 days to get it processed for you to get the stuff that you want but (laughs) you know I guess if people really want it that's the only option I see that is left
0: (laughs) oh my gosh that is hilarious I like I'm sorry but that visual is just really killing me if someone like putting in the effort to write a check and then getting a stamp (laughs) for notification that they're Official premium subscription is now good to go because their check is cleared. They always have
1: to call and be like, so, you know, my check cleared.
0: Mech, <laughs> <laughs> we have news that the UN is supporting Indian women fighting a shadow pandemic of domestic violence. Shutdowns, layoffs, and stay-at-home orders across the globe pose a very specific threat to people facing domestic violence at home. With limited and restricted access to resources and support, women in India are more vulnerable to domestic violence during the pandemic. A woman from a T-state in northern India, given the pseudonym Manjanita for her protection, was forced to leave her home after being beaten within an inch of her life early on in the pandemic. She reached out to a local Jugnu club for support. The Jugmu clubs are a collection of self-empowerment groups formed by women tea pluckers and factory workers on tea estates in Assam. They provide practical support for women, including temporary housing, work training, and acting as a physical shield in the presence of police and estranged spouses. The clubs are also involved in community education and engagement through skits, festivals, and policy recommendations. The clubs have recently been provided with additional support from UN women a branch of the UN dedicated to gender equality and female empowerment, who is continuing to develop the Global Women's Safety Framework in rural spaces.
1: Wow. I think it is great that the UN is supporting in India, but I, I remember reading an article about this, and I just think it's, I think it's sad overall that a pandemic like this has just created yeah. such an increase in domestic violence, not just in India, but across our world. Huh where our women and even men are being abused and murdered even faster than even before because they're having to stay at home mm-hmm. where they should be protected not just from a virus but from abuse and should be safe home should be safe a safe place for them and it's not for a lot of people and it's just so sad mm-hmm. that this is happening and women still to this day are having to fight just to be safe at home. Mm
0: -hmm. Like I love that it started out very local and now they're getting more international support. I would love to hear of more similar programs. And something else that I really liked about this story in particular is that they're called Jugnu Clubs because Jugnu means firefly. And so I think that that's just like a testament to the image of bringing light to a really dark space situation mm-hmm. that these women are doing and transforming their own and one another's lives. So I thought that was a really cute aspect
1: of it. Yeah, that is really nice and a good representation of the group. Mm-hmm. Moving on, a new federal health care rule started January 1st, 2021, which now requires hospitals to publicly post prices for every service they offer and break down those prices by component and procedure. This will provide clear, accessible pricing information online about the items and services they provide in two ways. One, as a comprehensive machine readable file with all items and services. And two, in a display of shoppable services in a consumer-friendly format. I have
0: very mixed feelings about this. Very, very strongly positive feelings. And then very strongly negative feelings like I don't feel neutral about this at all like I love that there's some transparency in the cost of medical care which is excellent as a medical student has just seen the harm that comes from surprise billing when someone comes in for even if it's not necessarily life-saving treatment if it's life-altering or if it's just Life enhancing, whether it's in the emergency department or they are admitted or they come in for an elective procedure. And then they have a certain understanding of, of what it's going to cost. And, you know, they go into recovery and sometimes weeks or even months later, they get hit with a bill from their insurance company of something that they have to pay. Or like hearing stories of people taking an Uber to the hospital because they know that an ambulance is going to cost too much. That's ridiculous. So, it, because of that, That's why I'm just like, okay, this could be a good thing. And so I could also see this potentially being not great in terms of like the second aspect of it being a shoppable service, because most people have internet access and access to Google. And a lot of people do use what they find online to kind of self-diagnose and figure out what treatment they need. And, but very few people have the same medical background. And so I could see this, that's where my like negative feelings about this come into play. I could see this just being (laughs) very difficult, like me being in the ED one day and being like, okay, this is based on what you're telling me. I think that we need to run these tests and these are my differentials. Here's what we're going to do for you. And someone else being like, no, I looked it up. It's this. You need to give me this. And so how is that going to change position accountability? like, and is it going to change? Like if someone, because now they can read on a on a list, they can pick that they want to have a CT. If I give them the CT and then they go to a different ED and they just, you know, keep getting CT scans and they have all of this radiation exposure and then develop cancer, who's then responsible? That's where my mind took it negatively. Because I know some people can be so demanding in terms of what they need. And then if it's available like this, what mm-hmm. kind of conversations or what new people skills do I need as a physician to convince someone otherwise?
1: Well, hopefully, I think, at least on a civilian aspect, I think of this more as it's like, like transparency on like being able to act, go online and compare the prices to make it easier for consumers to shop and compare prices across hospitals. Okay. So I would, I would and, and hopefully they're checking to make sure their insurance works if they have insurance mm-hmm. to make sure that if they're able to go across, and I know that um, CMS.gov is the place you go and you can on their care compare section of their website, Mm -hmm. you can go on and compare like 4,000 Medicare certified hospitals that hopefully they're looking for, they're looking at all these options and seeing, okay, so these hospitals work with my insurance. Mm -hmm. And if I have to pay a copay, then it would probably be be this amount. I know that they probably go in and like, you know, I looked it up and it's possibly this. Hopefully Mm -hmm. the doctor can kind of like redirect them back Mm -hmm. and be like, I understand that, you know, validate that they looked it up and validate how they're feeling, but then kind of be able to then take control of the situation with the patient and be like, you know what, these are, you know, with the symptoms that you're telling me, either, you know, they could be correct, this this, uh, patient, or the doctor may be like, you know, even though these symptoms do match with what you saw on WebMD or what you saw on the internet, I really do think it's probably this, and these are the the drugs or the scans that that we would need to do. And mm-hmm. if they're like, oh, I looked it up, and that one's really expensive, then maybe the doctor could provide an alternative to it, or they make the patient would make that decision on their own to not get it because mm-hmm. they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So
0: that is kind of, no. That's I think that's a good point too because so much of oh, how do I want to say this? I don't know. Like I really like the way that you articulated that concern from like a layperson in medicine perspective. I personally just don't like the concept of people obtaining a certain level of care because of money. I think that's why I feel so mixed about this is because I don't think that people should have to pay out of pocket for healthcare in the first place. And so I'm like, okay, like I see, I really see the benefit in being able to strategize and budget for treatment that you need, because that's how our system exists right now. But I just don't think that that system should exist. So if it's going to lead people to be able to get certain treatment when they previously wouldn't see it, because they know exactly how much they need to budget, I guess, I mean, that's beneficial for now. I just, I just personally think that people should have to pay.
1: I think you're right. It is really, really hard. And it is sad to know that we do have millions of Americans right now, especially during the pandemic who are, who've lost their jobs, don't have health insurance, mm-hmm. or even if they have a job, maybe they have a job and don't have health insurance or they have a job, but maybe their health insurance isn't that great and doesn't cover a lot of services. And so mm-hmm. there are a lot of people or they just don't have it and they can't afford health care. And, mm-hmm. What is sad about our system is that we do have a lot of people across the country who can't afford it. And that's why they don't get themselves checked out. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they could have something severe happen to them or some severe symptoms come up. They go to the hospital and it could have been it could be cancer stage four mm-hmm. or it could be something that if they came in and got preventive checks, if they mm-hmm. had health insurance, it could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you. It is, it is like a positive and a negative, and it, d- it does really highlight still the inadequacies that we have in our nation currently. I
0: feel like this is like a Band-Aid on something that severely needs stitches. It's helpful, but there's still room for improvement. This isn't like the last stage. But yeah, I thought I thought that was very interesting.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it really works and if hospitals do really implement them in facilities because I remember reading to you that if you don't implement it, there will be like random choosing of hospitals to see if they're actually implementing it and there could be repercussions such as charges and costs mm-hmm. that they would have to be paid for not implementing it. So I think... it in the end, and, and it could be a really good learning experience, too, on what works and what doesn't, and if this is even a good thing to have. It may not even, people may not even think it's useful or may not even use it, so.
0: I mean, we'll see. Some inspiring news from the youth as athletes raise awareness for murdered and missing Indigenous women. Murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women, and rates of violence on reservations can be up to 10 times higher than the national average. A recent study by the Urban Indian Health Institute found that only 116 of 5,712 Known cases of murdered or missing Native women were logged into the Department of Justice's nationwide database. Young athletes are utilizing their platforms to bring awareness to the murdered and missing Indigenous women, or MMIW, movement. Rosalie Fish, a member of the Cowichan Tribe, is a runner for Iowa Central Community College and has worn a painted red handprint across the bottom of her face during races since 2019. Members of the girls' basketball team at Mesa Westwood High in Arizona. Have have added the names of missing and murdered Indigenous women to their game day jerseys, and the boys' cross-country team from Monument Valley High School on the Navajo Nation Reservation often compete with a red handprint painted on their faces as well.
1: I love that. I think that's another great way to spread awareness about Mm -hmm. missing and murdered Indigenous women. I think a couple episodes ago talked about this subject, Mm -hmm. and it It's just nice to know that there is more groups and people spreading awareness about it because it is an issue that needs to be worked on Mm -hmm. And it is. And I know that Westwood High School, too, in Mesa, Arizona. So that makes me happy to hear that. (laughs) I just
0: really like I hate the circumstances under which young people have become activists because the terrible parts of the world are just being brought to light, at least for them. And Mm -hmm. they're not just going to let older generations like our generation and their parents' generation. They're not just going to let them sit back and be like, oh, well, this is how the world is. They are actively doing what they can mm-hmm. to make a change. And I really love that. So the, the concept of the red handprint painted on the face, I guess, is from a woman by the name of Jordan Marie Brings Three White Horses Daniel. She's an indigenous woman and athlete from the cool wakasa oyate tribe in South Dakota. And she is one of the first people who was noted to run and compete with the red handprint on her face. She kind of started it. Rosalie Fish is also really known for it. this and a lot of other young people are doing it as well. I saw it actually on TikTok and I saw in the TikTok the hashtag MMIW and so because I knew what that meant I just put it together but had I seen this just in person I feel like I would have been really lost and not known but then hopefully that would have led me to Do my own research and learn about it. That's, I think, the point of it.
1: And I've also uh, seen photos of when women have protested that they have that red handprint on their faces, too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great symbol.
0: I think so, too. I think it's not only is it very distinct, but I think it's very closely tied with indigenous culture. There's a lot of aspects of it that really make it prominent.
1: Yeah. Next, Argentina senators vote to legalize abortion. Argentina is the first big Latin American country to go so far. When. The vote was announced. It was emotional. There were tears of joy, singing and dancing. People even let off fireworks. Until this point, abortion have only been permitted in the case of rape or where the mother's life was seriously at risk. The new law makes abortion legal in the first 14 weeks. Supporters say that tens of thousands of Argentine women and girls are hospitalized each year because of unsafe underground abortions and that more than 3,000 women have died in the last few decades because of this. And they hope that this will do a lot of help in the end. The president, Alberto Fernandez, is a key supporter of the law. He says abortion will now be safe, legal, and free. Mm, of
0: course you know I love this one. <laughs> Literally, legal abortion saves lives.
1: I heard about this and I was like, he is going to love this. <laughs> When I
0: saw the notes I was like, Yeah but I mean might... when
1: I heard about it, yeah, I was I was happy for it too.
0: I just haven't really been on social media this week. Well, not more than this week, but yeah, so I have not been as tapped in as I feel like I usually am. But this, of course, is great news. I think in our first episode, we talked about abortion in Brazil specifically, which is another Latin American country. And I know that the commandments you shall not kill is often used in anti-abortion rhetoric. And because a lot of Latin American countries are very heavily Christian, I think that that sometimes gets tied up in their legislative process. So they impose their own religious beliefs on other people, which You know, also happens in the United States. I love that they were just like, no, we we're looking at the data.
1: (laughs) Yeah, being Christian and Catholic is a big is a big one for a lot of Hispanic cultures. Mm -hmm. But even like El Salvador, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua, like they all still. Currently, ban abortions in all circumstances. Mm-hmm. Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala—they uh, allow abortions, but it's usually only in those two events: like mm-hmm. if you rape or the woman' life is at risk. Mm-hmm. While abortions remain largely restricted or illegal throughout some of these other countries, mm-hmm. it is crazy so that abortions should be a woman's choice. It's their body should be their choice at the end mm-hmm. of the day. And according to data from Guttmacher Institute. It found that unintended pregnancy rates are highest in countries that restrict abortion access Mm -hmm. and lowest in countries where abortion is broadly legal. Mm -hmm. That is a great stat to follow.
0: It goes along with what you were just saying, because, you know, they're imposing Catholic norms. I went to Catholic school most of my life. I'm semi-Catholic now still. Um, (laughs) Catholic morality, if you look at abortion from a moral perspective, abortion is not something that the Catholic Church shuns. It's only when you look at it from the perspective of the commandment, which is something also very interesting. In terms of that statistic where unintended pregnancies are lowest in places where abortion access is higher, it's also really linked when you have more access to abortion. You also have more access to health education and reproductive justice and contraception before you get pregnant. So people know all of the steps that are involved in getting pregnant and all the ways that you can prevent it even before conception. That way abortion is like or like post-conception termination of a pregnancy is reduced. So
1: yeah I think there's all kind of I think abortion in general, whether it's legal or legal, I feel like a lot of the countries that make it illegal mm-hmm. is because it's like sex is there, but we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to teach our kids about it. It's kind of like mm-hmm. your parents can teach you, but we it's like really hush-hush and like on the DL when no, it really shouldn't be on the DL. Teaching in all the schools, teach sex education, mm-hmm. make students aware. Make the youth aware so that they can go into sexual encounters being as responsible as possible. And I feel like if you do that, then you would see a drop in young teen pregnancies. You would see a drop in people wanting to get abortions. Mm -hmm. You would just it would reduce that number. And so it would be beneficial in both ways. You yeah. wouldn't have people, so many people trying to fight against abortion and you would be also educating our population so they're not ignorant. It's like mm-hmm. when we talked about the Philippines and stuff, like yes. there needs to be a change in a movement to not look at this as like taboo to have in school. Yes, yeah. I guess if you're a parent uh, really doesn't want your kid to learn that of school, then you know you can not let your kid you know go to class. But I really think in general, you're hindering your own student your own child from not learning this information Mm -hmm. because it shouldn't be thought of as either like really something to giggle about or to be embarrassed or whatever about, you know, learning about the body parts of human and what females have versus males. It should be thought of as this is just a natural thing. Learn all about it so that people aren't scared, embarrassed or trying to hide themselves. People can really be who they are when they know, and then people won't be so upset Or, you know, they won't be all confused. They'll be like, oh, okay, and keep going on their day because it's normal.
0: Yes, and especially if you teach people that at a young age, they're more likely to be open-minded and receptive to new concepts as they grow up. If you put them in a box and constantly restrict what they're taught and what you think is okay for them, then they grow up thinking that and then it just perpetuates the cycle of of discrimination and, and bigotry. Like you said, if you are that concerned about your... Child not learning a specific aspect of something, that's on you as a parent to either fix that at home or whatever. You shouldn't put a blanket. Restriction on that for everybody.
1: I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Um, and even from attending a very, very Christian university mm-hmm. where it was like Ring by Spring and it's true to Christianity, I had a teacher. The way he described this, was, I really feel like, in general, no matter your religion, no matter whatever you believe in, every child should learn about sex education because at the end of the day, and my teacher had said, everyone is human. Mm -hmm. and just because you don't like or agree with someone's lifestyle does not mean that you should treat them in an inhumane way Mm -hmm. they are humans and they have rights Mm -hmm. and just because you don't like it does not mean that you have the right to tear other people down Mm -hmm. you may not believe it But that's something you should keep to yourself. You should know that they exist and that they're out there and treat them the same as you would treat anyone else Mm -hmm. with respect and keep it to yourself that you don't agree. Because at the end of the day, everyone has a right to live the life that they want.
0: Yeah, live and be treated with respect and dignity. Our last hot topic for today, Alex Padilla is to assume Senator Harris's congressional seat. California Governor Gavin Newsom appointed Alex Padilla to fill the seat of Vice President-Elect Kamala Harris when she is inaugurated later this month. Padilla began his career in 1999 when he was elected to the Los Angeles City Council at the age of 26. He currently serves as Secretary of State and will be California's first Latino to serve as state senator. He is a first-generation Chicano who grew up in the San Fernando Valley. News of his appointment has drawn mixed reviews. While many are excited about the representation Padilla offers as the first Latinx senator in a state where Latinos make up about 40% of the population, others are hesitant about his political judgment. Padilla's office signed a $35 million state contract with the public affairs firm SKD Knickerbocker early in 2020 and the firm agreed to run a statewide voter education and outreach campaign to encourage Californians to vote in 2020. Knickerbocker did the work leading up to the election and billed the state for $34 million. Unfortunately, Padilla did not have the authority to spend the money, and when he assumes the position of senator later this month, uh, California will just be stuck with a floating bill.
1: Hmm, well, this is something I haven't been paying attention even though I was just in California recently. <laughs> no, it's, no. I'm really excited that we have a Latino yes. Chicano very exciting.
0: I feel like this, I don't even want to call it a controversy yet, but this particular political move, his intentions were so good. He wanted people to be educated about voting and he wanted people to be registered to vote and make sure that they knew how they could vote safely in a pandemic and what their rights were in regards to voting from home, early voting, all that. Which is so good. This, (laughs) This price tag So it's very concerning as a person who, you know, I haven't paid income tax in a few years because I've had no income, but that's going to change this year (laughs) and it might. You know, I might be paying California income tax and $34 million is just such a large sum of money.
1: It is. And California is already in debt as it is. So <laughs> the price tag makes me wishy-washy. It's It makes me feel like the same way that I feel about Puerto Rico becoming... A state. Yes, a state because they're in so much... Debt mm-hmm. from correct politicians mm-hmm. that I'm like, I love Puerto Rico, like, my family's from there, but I don't think we should become a state. Mm -hmm. not just because of the money for other reasons but also because of the money because mm -hmm. I I don't think that we need that added to our huge tremendous debt that we already have
0: yeah I I mean there are other criticisms that other people have of his political career and the policies that he's voted on that I didn't read as much into because they're more in the distant past and I know that people grow as they grow and change as they age Mm -hmm. and you know he's been in politics for 21 20 years.
1: Yeah, 26. Wow.
0: So I chose this particular issue because it is something that affects, it's really recent. It affects me. A decision hasn't been made in regards to what's going to happen about this bill. Like where's the money going to come from?
1: Yeah, I think it's really hard. And I know some information, even when Joe Biden was running, that came up about his past and about some decisions that he went with mm-hmm. back in the day, back in like the 90s or earlier. And really with any politician, the decisions made at that time were influenced by what was going on in the world. Yes. It was influenced by how old they were, influenced by their experience. Now it's they're probably very different. And it, I think it, I don't really think or agree that we should always be looking at someone's past and be judging them. Yes, it's good to acknowledge and learn about previous things they voted on or did, but it, then you also need to take into context then what was going on in that time.
0: I agree. And,
1: take into consideration those aspects, not just, oh my God, they voted for this. This is horrible. They're going to be like this now, you know, read about the policies that they're currently trying to enact.
0: I agree. I think context and also consistency, like if someone is consistently voting against the wishes of their constituents, then they probably shouldn't be elected anymore. (laughs) That's something that we need to discuss. But if someone is voting in support of the people that they represent, then I think that that, there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're continuously elected. I know that there were some other criticisms about him being really conservative, but I, I couldn't find any resources about that. It was more so people's opinions. And then when I look through some of his the policies that he supported, I didn't necessarily see the policies that he supported reflect people's opinion, if that makes mm, sense. Yeah, so. that makes sense. I mean, we'll see. I think it's long overdue.
1: But I just think at the end of the day that we need, we need to stop nitpicking our politicians because no one's perfect.
0: I agree that no one's perfect. I think that there's a difference between nitpicking and accountability. Like, yes,
1: I do agree with that.
0: I think like if this is an accountability issue where he's not a good communicator, that's something that we need to
1: address. Yeah. But
0: if that's not the case, then l- let him be senator, and do some good things.
1: Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Right, and that concludes our hot topics. Woo-hoo. Our woman of the week is Cher Height. Height received her bachelor's and master's degree in history from the University of Florida at Gainesville. She attended graduate school at Columbia, where she started to work towards a doctorate in social history, but left when she was told that she could not write her dissertation on female sexuality. Cher startled the world in the 1970s with her groundbreaking reports on female sexuality and her conclusion that women did not need conventional sexual intercourse, or men for that matter, to achieve sexual satisfaction. Let's
0: go Share.
1: <laughs> her most famous work, The Height Report, a nationwide study of female sexuality, challenged Societal and Freudian assumptions about how women achieved orgasm. It was not necessarily through intercourse. women she found were quite capable of finding sexual pleasure on their own. However, obviously her conclusions might seem today like a no-brainer mm-hmm. but they were really shunned and it was a new topic back then mm-hmm. for all women or all the women who had faked orgasm during intercourse the height report helped awaken their sexual power and was seen as advancing the liberation of women that was rapidly underway the, the book, book became, became a- an instant bestseller and has been translated into a dozen language more than 48 million copies have been sold worldwide what set the height report apart from the other from any other studies, were the questionnaires at the heart of it? More than 3,000 women wrote candidly and open-endedly about their experiences. Researchers should stop telling women what they should feel sexually and start asking them what they do feel sexually, Miss Height wrote. Height lectured at universities around the world and wrote several books. Cher Height died this past September in London and was 77 years old. Her husband is her only immediate survivor.
0: I have heard of the Height Report in very specific circles. Very understandably, a lot of doula work and work surrounding abortion and loss is very feminist, so a lot of people who are very active in feminism movement cite the high report very often. Like you said, this is like seems like a no brainer today, but I can mm-hmm. really see how in the seventies people were like, Oh no, we gotta shut this lady
1: up. We was, gotta oh. shut it down.
0: <laughs> no. She's like, I have to tell my story. I have to tell all these other people's stories. We're going to get the word out.
1: Yeah, I just think it's crazy because another stat from the High Report was that more than 70% of the respondents shattered the notion that women received sufficient stimulation during basic intercourse to reach climax. Rather, they said they needed stimulation of the clitoris, but often felt guilty and inadequate about it and were too embarrassed to tell their sexual partners. So that means that even like back in the 70s, which wasn't too long ago, mm. that women were were still very embarrassed about their bodies and sharing and just uh, honestly being open with their own husbands yeah. or sexual partners about what would truly stimulate them. So that just makes it sound like that sex was really just to produce babies and was boring.
0: And was a chore, largely. Yeah. I can't imagine being involved with someone and not being able to tell them mm-hmm. how I feel, what feels best. <laughs> I mean, that's really not my personality at all. But I don't know if it's just because regardless of what generation I was born in, I would have been as outspoken in, in those terms, or if it's mm-hmm. because we're standing on the shoulders of giants and we have the high report to fall back on, and women's sexuality has come such a long way. Yeah, that I feel comfortable doing that. It's interesting. I think that's something that I'll think about. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it was definitely a, a turning point back then for women to and to also kind of normalize because if this is something that they haven't really, they're too embarrassed to talk about with their husbands are more likely not talking about it with their friends mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. to read a book about it with other women expressing it mm-hmm. they're in a sense not alone it's that realization that they're not alone in this that other women are experiencing this and that if you try this you know this could be a lot more fun yeah you know? I
0: still feel like there is still some shame in terms of the conversations that women have with one another like amongst girlfriends regarding mm-hmm. sexuality and I I see it with my own friends like sometimes I'll say something they will be like Leah." I can't believe you said that. And I'm like, no, we, okay, if you can't believe I said it, we need to talk about it. <laughs> like, we
1: need to talk about this ASAP. They obviously need to look through your computer feed. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew that real fast. <laughs>
0: I mean, I don't really (laughs) mince words when it comes to that, which is what's so funny. Oh, yeah. A lot of people still feel, a lot of people, women in particular, still feel a lot of shame. And so it's not like I'm doing any extra or extraordinary work in terms of getting people to feel less shame. But having those conversations and not giggling about it and being upfront and just being really supportive is a great step.
1: Yeah, I honestly, like when I talk to my friends and they're like, oh, and we did me my partner did this if I like never done that I'm like explain it like give me the deets because I've obviously not done it and I'm more curious than anything I might be like whoa but like I'm more curious so like you know tell me more about this you know (laughs) Um, and and yeah I definitely think that women I have had friends in the past too have been kind of, of like shamers in the sense like anything outside of marriage is just horrible and like that's not helpful no it's not and I think you know as a society even today that's something that we need to work on but I'm so well so we're not in the 70s where women who are embarrassed to even talk to our significant others let alone friends mm-hmm. about sex and faking or orgasms that would really suck
0: yeah I don't believe in that at all no. I ain't
1: got time for that no
0: no that benefits nobody unless you're tr- no I don't want to say there's not even an LS I was gonna say unless you're trying to get out of a situation really quickly no just leave <laughs> I have also I- done <laughs> Like, you know, this isn't working. I'm a, I'm a dip. Don't worry about calling an Uber. I will walk. (laughs) I I just got
1: to get out of here. Oh, no
0: today in history. On January 3rd, 1994, citizenship was granted to nearly 7 million Black South Africans whose rights were virtually non-existent during apartheid. The election that followed in April of that year was the first non-racial and totally democratic election in South African history. Citizens overwhelmingly voted for Nelson Mandela, electing him the first Black president of South Africa just three years after his release from federal prison. Have you ever seen the movie The Color of Friendship? I have not. Movie? I feel like that was my first introduction to apartheid as a mm-hmm. child. And I think that movie came out, if not the late 90s, then the very, very early 2000s. Like, I definitely watched that movie maybe even before middle school. Wow. And that's how I learned about apartheid and South mm-hmm. Africa. Seeing today's today in history, seven, like, I knew that South Africa was predominantly black. I knew that because it is literally an African country. The fact that 7 million black Africans whose ancestry is from nowhere else but South Africa couldn't vote in an election where laws were made on the land where all of their ancestors were from is
1: just really wild. Mm -hmm. I definitely this is something that. I think 2020 definitely made me think about a lot. Racism in general, but it definitely because this year was definitely highlighted with all the protests. Mm -hmm. It just made me rethink a lot of stuff and, and actually made me think back to my own education learning about slavery or just different races in general Mm -hmm. and how I want to bring up my kids that movie that you just mentioned like I never have heard about and never (laughs) watched it and I think one thing that I definitely want to do with my kids is maybe just every month spend the whole month with with my kids on like a different country or a different race and just diving in and just with my kids totally just wholeheartedly going into it like learning about it watching movies about it just being educated and open-minded about it so that my kids are aware mm-hmm. and that they're not in my position sitting here being like, no, I, did. I have no clue that that movie existed or they can reference and be like, yeah, and this and this and this, and just be super knowledgeable on mm-hmm. the subject and just be open. Cause I am really tired of just how bad 2020 was really glad it's over, mm-hmm. but this, there's so much improvements that need to be made and I constantly even see like myself and others like on how we all need to improve and do better. To me, this just reminds me even more that I continually have stuff that I need to work on to do better.
0: All of us do something that I tried to do. Not so much last year because I honestly was just trying to get through last year. <laughs> In In 2019, I set a goal for myself to read 40 non-medical books. I think January, I just like read really random things. I read Harry Potter. And then I tried to start Lord of the Rings, but I couldn't get through that. Um, Mm. (laughs) But in February, I was like, okay, for February, it's Black History Month. I'm only going to read Black Off. And then Mm -hmm. March is Women's History Month. So I only read female authors. And then, Mm -hmm. like, I went through it that way. And then June was Pride Month. I only read queer authors or, like, about queer history. I kind of just worked my way through that way. Yeah. Even if it's not to that big a scale, there are things that you could do and incorporate into your life. Even if you continue going on and you're just like, okay, once a month we're going to read a book by a person of color. But the movie Color of Friendship, it's on Disney Plus right now, if you have that. Is it? Um, I do. Yeah, because it was a movie made for children and I think that that's also something that I've noticed recently is that children's television and children's programming has kind of been trying to keep up with the times like they're more open about discussing things they did a babysitters club reboot that was on netflix Hmm. yeah and they covered transitioning in terms of one of the children that they were babysitting was transitioning and like advocating for trans people and i was just like i love this and it wasn't even rated pg it was rated g and i was like i love how they're just like no this is something we need to talk about like just how we were discussing earlier people need to be treated humanely regardless of whatever aspect of their identity you might feel uncomfortable with so let's just Normalize it by incorporating it in with no pomp and circumstance.
1: Yes, I do think that. I think it's a that's great, and I love. I do see that too with Disney and a lot of shows them incorporating that, and I love it. And I think that is great. And I also think too what I said with what I would like to do with my kids. I definitely want to do that when they fully can comprehend. But even when they're younger, like just how you went through months of like women and pride, and I know there's Hispanic, and we did Native American not too long Mm -hmm. ago, like November. Mm -hmm. I think all that too. Even when your kids are young, could just buy children's books. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of children's books coming out about Native Americans, Hispanics, or even if it's just by a Black author or a Native American person buying it and expressing that, you know, this is to your children, like, it's, you know, Black History Month. So we're going to tonight when we go to bed, we're going to read this story.
0: Yeah, someone was saying, like, decolonize your bookshelf. How many of the books do you own that are just some old European white guy that you were told to read in high school and that's the only reason why you know about it for every one book you have like that pick a book written by someone else or about something else making baby steps and if you incorporate it into your everyday life it makes it a lot easier to just recognize the humanity in everybody
1: yep I agree If you like what you're hearing, please review us on whatever platform you listen to. If you have any recommendations or specific women that you would like to hear about, please email us at actupodcast one at gmail.com. And please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at actupodcast.
0: The reputable sources that we acquired this week's information from are NPR, Exodus Cry, CMS.gov, New York Times, the UN Sustainable Development Group, the Associated Press, and the LA Times. Happy New Year and stay safe, y'all.
1: Happy New Year. (laughs) Bye.